Right on. Thank you very much. My name is Ryan Milne. I'm a recovered alcoholic. Hey, Ron. <clears throat> Glad to see everybody. Um, yeah, Josh, thanks for inviting me to do this. I'm all, I'll tell you, I'm all fired up. I'm all excited. I, it gives me an excuse to talk about, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous. It gives me an excuse to talk about the big book and talk from the big book. And uh, I love it. I absolutely love it. I will say <clears throat> for the foundation meeting, before I get into it, if you guys have big books, uh, it might be best. The meeting might go better if you have them in front of you there. I'm going to be uh, saying a bunch of page numbers and reading out of the book and then talking about it a little bit. And, uh, you know, the meeting might be smoother if you got your book in front of you. <clears throat> I'd recommend it. Uh, what else do I say before I start? My sobriety date is November 13th, 2006. My home group is Primary Purpose Group, Webster, New York. We meet on Zoom at uh, 9.30 a.m. Eastern um, on Sunday mornings. <clears throat> Maybe uh, Risa would be cool and put those numbers in the chat for us there. <laughs> um, yeah, right on. Josh, thanks again for asking me. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to see so many friends here. This is awesome. Uh, so yeah, let's get on with it. This is the foundation meeting and, uh, you know, I'll start first by talking about kind of the purpose of the foundation meeting, you know, <clears throat> uh, it's important. It's, it's basically need to know information. It's, uh, you know, AA 101, if you want, or, uh, you know, intro to Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm going to spend a lot of time tonight talking about alcoholism, and I'm going to spend some time talking about AA's plan of action, plan of recovery from alcoholism, how, <clears throat> I'm going to talk about, you know, what made me so sick and how did I get well, basically, <clears throat> because, you know, we hear lots of things in AA meetings that are not necessarily AA, you know, um, some people call the foundation meeting a Mythbusters kind of thing. Um, and, you know, the thing with the AA meetings is like, you know, anybody can pretty much come to an AA meeting and pretty much say anything they want, right? Like there's no AA police and that's a good thing, obviously, you know, um, but what kind of happens is, you know, somebody comes, they hear something from somewhere else and they come to the AA meeting and they say it and it sounds good, right? It sounds like really cool. So somebody else, they hear it again and they hear it again. And it's kind of like this oral tradition, right? <clears throat> And, you know, that kind of gets spread. And as the years go by, we kind of have gathered all this stuff we hear in meetings that isn't necessarily Alcoholics Anonymous, doesn't come from our program of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, and I kind of have these things separated into two different categories. You know, the first one I find less damaging, you know, you hear things like go to 90 meetings in 90 days, or don't get in a relationship for the first year or change people, places and things, right? We hear that stuff in AA meetings all the time. And could be good advice. You know what I mean? It could be cool. It's just, it's not from our program. Our program doesn't, doesn't really say any of that stuff. So <clears throat> it's cool. If you want to go to 90 meetings in 90 days, like it's probably not, you know, do your thing. You know what I'm saying? It's just, it's just not what our, what our program suggests. In fact, when our program, you know, came about, uh, you know, these, these guys uh, and women were going to one meeting a week, usually, you know, one meeting a week. And the rest of the time was spent trying to deepen their relationship with their higher power, and, uh, and try to carry the message to sick and suffering alcoholics. So, you know, that stuff, I don't, I'm not too passionate about it, whatever, you know, but there's this whole other kind of stuff that we hear in AA meetings that, you know, I, I think could possibly be deadly, you know, and, and the stuff, honestly, it, it, it comes from a good place. People mean, well, people are sharing what they've heard and what they were taught. And, and, you know, they, they mean, well, they're trying to help, you know, they're not like trying to hurt anybody, but you hear things like, you know, put the plug in the jug, uh, 
you know, play the tape all the way through before you drink. Remember the worst before the first. Um, or if somebody relapses, you might hear him like, oh, he didn't want it enough, something like that, you know? And, and my absolute favorite or least favorite, however you want to say it is, um, I woke up this morning and chose not to drink. <clears throat> all this, all this stuff here, it just shows an absolute lack of understanding of, of the disease of alcoholism, of what alcoholism is. You know, it's so tonight we're going to talk about some of that stuff. <laughs> uh, I'll get on to the book here. And uh, when I talk about the book, I'm referring to Alcoholics Anonymous. This is the fourth edition that I'll be working on. And that's the page numbers I'll be giving you is out of the fourth edition. <clears throat> I'm going to start with the uh, preface, which is on Roman numeral XI, Roman numeral 11. <clears throat> and I'm going to go to the second paragraph down. It says, because this book has become the basic text for our society and has helped such large numbers of alcoholic men and women to recovery, there exists strong sentiment against any radical changes being made in it. The reason I like to start with this is because it's important we understand this book is a textbook, okay? This is our program of recovery, and this is a textbook. This book is not to be read like a novel. I didn't know that. I'll say, you know, I remember when I was in rehab, you know, AA members were coming in talking and saying, read the book, read the book. So somebody gave me a book. So I read the book and like it did me no good. I guess it was fine, you know, whatever, but it did me no good. It all just went over my head, you know? So if I'm treating this book, <clears throat> Alcoholics Anonymous, like a textbook, uh, that's where the real, you know, value is going to come from, I guess. Let's go ahead to the forward to the first edition, which is on Roman numeral eight, XIII. <clears throat> and I'm going to start right at the top there. It says, we of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. To show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. So they're throwing, you, you notice I, I announce myself as a recovered alcoholic. Um, you know, it says that I've recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. Okay. And we're going to get into that. That's the illness of alcoholism is of mind and body. And I'm not suffering from that anymore. So I have recovered from that. I'm not cured. I am still an alcoholic. If I put alcohol in my body, all bets are off. I'll be off and running. It'll be a nightmare. Guaranteed. No question. My track record proves that. But as I sit here today, you know, I don't, I'm not drinking. I'm not thinking about drinking. For me, that problem has been removed. I am recovered. I am free from, from, from the bondage of alcohol. <clears throat> and they use that word here. And then it's going to say, just to show us how they recovered, the authors of this book is the main purpose of the book. So that's why they wrote this book. Okay. All right. Let's talk about alcoholism. Let's go on to page 30, not Roman numeral 30, regular old 30. <clears throat> And let's see what they say there. So I'm at the uh, second paragraph down. It says, we learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. Okay, that's awesome. But we need to learn what an alcoholic is before we can do that. They're asking me to concede deep inside, in my soul, in my heart, that I am an alcoholic. But I can't say yes or no to that until I understand what an alcoholic is. All right, so we're going to break you know, alcoholism into a few different uh, topics, I guess you we're going to talk about the physical and the mental. <clears throat> but before I can do that, you know, um, before I can do that, I do want to talk about what alcoholism is not. All right. I had 
different ideas when I came to AA about what an alcoholic was and what alcoholism is. So alcoholism is not, does not mean we are weak willed. Um, it does not mean this is one that got me. This is, does not to be an alcoholic. One does not necessarily have to drink all the time. Okay. Drinking, you know, around the clock. I did not do that. That's not my, that's not my story. That's not my experience. You hear the cat. Um, <laughs> some people do a lot of alcoholics do right. Friends with a lot of people, sponsor guys, drank vodka 24-7, around the clock, bottle stashed under the bed. I did not do that. That does not mean I'm not an alcoholic. Also, to be an alcoholic does not mean we've gone to jail or prison or have been homeless or have had you know, multiple DWIs. No specific consequence mean makes you an alcoholic. Okay. I mean, you know, there's in our, in our meetings, there's, there's a lot of people who, you know, possibly got that second DWI within 10 years. That's a felony in New York anyways, you know, and, and they come to AA meetings. That does not necessarily mean they're alcoholic. Maybe, you know, maybe they're just idiots. Maybe they just made bad choices. You know what I mean? It doesn't necessarily mean that they're alcoholic. Um, so no specific consequence means I'm alcoholic. That's important. All right, let's talk about the physical aspect here. Let's go back to Roman numeral 28. X, X, V, I, I, I. All right. So I'm at the first full paragraph there. And uh, this is written by uh, Dr. Silkworth, <clears throat> the doctor that helped uh, Bill Wilson get sober. And he says, we believe, and so suggested a few years ago, that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy that the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. All right, so let's talk about that real quick here. So they're, they're telling us that the action of alcohol, when I drink alcohol, what happens, the action is a manifestation of an allergy, okay? And how that allergy manifests, how that allergy shows up is a craving for more alcohol. Okay. So like this makes sense in hindsight, but while I was drinking, you know, I, I did not know, I was not conscious or aware that I was craving more alcohol as I'm drinking alcohol. You know what I'm saying? It just seemed to me at the time, like I was having fun. I was having a good night. You know, I didn't want the party to stop. Like that's how it seemed in my head. It didn't seem like, and, and it felt like I was the one making the choices. It felt like, you know, after the third or fourth drink, it felt like a good idea to have a fifth drink, you know, and after the 10th drink, when everybody else wanted to go home, it felt like, uh, you know, that's not what I want to do. I want to keep partying, you know? So if, I felt like I was making these choices as I was going, but you know, our program is going to tell us it's a craving beyond my mental control. So even though I thought I was making these choices and making these decisions, uh, it was beyond my, my willpower, beyond my control. And the alcohol was more powerful than I was, <clears throat> um, you know, and there were other times I'll say briefly, you know, where I would make a commitment to myself to go out and only have a certain amount of drinks. I never really said one or even two, you know what I'm saying? Like that, that just sounded stupid. Like I wasn't going to do that pretty much, but there was times when I would say, all right, you know, like you could have three drinks, you'd be good with three drinks, you know? And what would happen somewhere along during that second drink, or maybe, maybe into the third one, you know, the idea would say, you know, 
you don't need to go to bed as quick as you were planning on, you know, you could have another one, you know, and it made it seem like it didn't look like a craving. It looked like I'm just changing my mind and I'm having fun and I want to keep drinking. That's all that really seemed like to me. So we flip over to page uh, 30, Roman numeral 30, XXX, down towards the bottom there. Uh, the doctor's going to kind of back this up again. He's going to say, uh, <clears throat> They cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon of craving. This phenomenon, as we have suggested, may be the manifestation of an allergy, which differentiates these people and sets them apart as a distinct entity. Okay, so this is important. You know, um, this only alcoholics suffer this craving on this level. You know, uh, non-alcoholics, social drinkers, hard drinkers, other people can really be enjoying themselves. And, you know, just having fun and feel like getting drunk that night. It's okay. But there's a craving that's happening in, in the alcoholic that uh, is only experienced by the alcoholic. It says that sets us apart as a distinct entity. You know, I always laugh about this. You know, when I came to AA, I remember my sponsor, I, I said, uh, man, my whole life, I always felt different. He goes, you are. <laughs> it was great for me. It was like, oh, good. You know, and, you know, through Alcoholics Anonymous, I've kind of... Uh, found my people, I guess. Um, let's skip over to page 22, regular numbers 22. <clears throat> and I'm, I'm going to be right at the bottom of the page there. It says, we're equally positive that once he takes any alcohol, whatever into his system, something happens both in the bodily and mental sense, which, which makes it virtually impossible for him to stop. The experience of any alcoholic will abundantly confirm this. All right. So, you know, I, I obviously know non-alcoholics and family members and other people in my life who are, who are not alcoholic. And, you know, I won't lie. I watch them drink. Okay. I'll, I'll watch, I'll watch these normies drink sometimes, you know, and I can watch somebody, you know, basically, you know, drink a glass of wine and then, you know, maybe somewhere in the second glass of wine, they, they might push that drink aside and, and they're done. You know, what's happening to them is they are starting to feel it and they are starting to get this kind of out of control feeling and their brain tells them, shut it down. That's it. You're good. Shut it down. You know, and for me, for, for the alcoholic, you know, we're opposite from that. When I'm onto my second or third drink, something happens in there that is that, that I come alive. I come awake. My wiring says let's go. I mean, I start to feel almost like I'm in control and I, I love that feeling. I mean, I live for that feeling. It was, it was just, just phenomenal. And I chased that feeling tremendously, um, you know, for, for, for quite a while there. Um, so basically uh, that, that's what happens when I drink. When, when the alcoholic drinks, we, we lose control over how much we drink and we crave more and that keeps going on and on. But if that's the only problem, there's a very simple solution. We can go back to, I told you I'm bouncing around here. We can go back to Roman numeral 30 XXX and see what the doctor says about that. I'm at the bottom of the page. It says the only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. So sweet. I, I, I get, I drink too much when I drink drinking causes me, uh, all kinds of consequences. I get in trouble when I drink, I can't control how much I drink when I drink. So there's a simple answer, abstinence, don't drink. And that would be all fine and good, but let's go back to 22 here or actually 23, excuse me. 
And I'm at the very, the first uh, full paragraph on 23. It says, these observations would be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink, thereby setting the terrible cycle in motion. Therefore, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than his body. And, and, and now we're starting to get into it. This is the crux of it. If, I, if drinking's a problem, I could stop drinking and live happily ever after. But that's not my story. You know, that's not what happens to the real alcoholic when they stop drinking. When we're separated from alcohol, you know, it seemed like things would get better. It seemed like drinking was the problem. I had all these people in my life tell me, Ryan, you got to quit drinking. You got to quit drinking. The drinking's killing you. You got to quit drinking. And it seemed like that that's logical. That made sense. But what would happen to me as I would quit drinking, I actually got in some ways I got worse, not better. You know, I actually felt more horrible as time went by not drinking and it didn't really, it wasn't logical. It didn't make sense. You know, I couldn't really, couldn't really figure that out. Um, you know, I remember uh, I, I've heard a, a speaker talk about, you know, when he would quit drinking, it seemed like someone would sneak in his bedroom at night and put a spring in his gut. And as, as, as time would go by, as those days would turn to weeks, it was like somebody was just tightening that spring, tightening that spring, tightening that spring. And, and, and eventually I relate to that. Eventually I just need relief. I need relief. I cannot, I don't know how to do sober. I don't know how to do abstinence. Let's go on to page 30 here. And I'm right at the top of the page here. One of my favorite paragraphs. Love this. Most of us have been unwilling to admit we were real alcoholics. No person likes to think he is bodily and mentally different from his fellows. Therefore, it is not surprising that our drinking careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove we could drink like other people. The idea that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. So, you know, we often talk about the mental obsession in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I kind of had this a little twisted. You know, I kind of thought the mental obsession was like me sitting in the corner of my room thinking, oh, I got to drink. I got to drink. I got to drink. I need to drink. And, you know, that does happen. That, that is a thing. You know, that does happen from time to time. But the great obsession really is this idea that I have in my mind that somehow, someday I will be able to control and enjoy my drinking at the same time. And, you know, basically the, what I, I was chasing that, you know, those, those mid teenage years, when I first started drinking, you know, it was awesome. It was awesome. And I, I had no consequences. I was just a fun party all the time and it was all good, you know, and my mind wanted that to go back to that so bad that I was delusional that as a, as an adult, I would be able to do that. I kind of had this idea like, well, you know, I'm probably, I'm older now, or I'm more grown up now, or I got a job now or whatever it is. Now I'll be able to drink, uh, uh, you know, the way, the way I want to, you know, and, um, you know, that's the great obsession of every abnormal drinker there. Let's go to 24. And you'll see on 24, there's some uh, italicized writing or squiggly writing, as some of us like to call it there. I'm going to go like halfway, halfway into that italicized writing there. It says, we are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against the first drink. And this is, this is what it looks like. I mean, it looks like time, some time goes by. I'm absolutely miserable. And, 
you know, I, I've been telling myself the thought of a drink will come and I'll say, no, you're not drinking. No, you're not drinking. And I'm able to do that and keep myself sober for a little while. I have success with that. Um, you know, play the tape all the way through that worked for me until it didn't, you know, cause it says at certain times, I'm not going to be able, my mind will not allow me to bring into my consciousness, the, the, the humili- humiliation and the suffering that comes when I start drinking, I, I, I'm, I have no defense and that time will come. And the thing with me is like, you know, I can keep myself sober, you know, nine out of 10 times, 99 out of a hundred times, maybe. But that time will come for me sooner or later. Well, I will convince myself this time, somehow, some way, this time will be different. And, and I'm off and running again. And I've told myself so many lies over the, about this over and over. You know, usually it's like, look, you just went two months without drinking. You could stop if you have to. You just proved it, you know, uh, or, um, you know, no, no liquor. It's the liquor that gets you. Just the beer. Just do the beer, you know. And I would tell myself stuff like that. And, you know, I always would end up at the same exact place. Everything would basically be the same, you know. Um, I'm going to continue on on that same, uh, the next paragraph there. The almost certain consequences that follow taking even a glass of beer do not crowd into the mind to deter us. If these thoughts occur, they are hazy and readily supplanted with the old threadbare idea that this time we shall handle ourselves like other people. There is a complete failure of the kind of defense that keeps one from putting a hand on a hot stove. I love this analogy, the hot stove. So, you know, anybody who's done that as a kid or a grown up, you know, if you've touched the hot stove, you know, that hurts, right? And you know, you're not going to, your brain is going to tell you and stop you from doing that again, basically. You know, when you see that hot stove, your brain tells you, whoa, that's going to hurt. Stay away but not so with alcohol, even though I burned my life to the ground over and over and over, I kept going back. But the reason for that is alcohol did something for me that putting my hand on a hot stove did not do. Let me tell you, if putting my hand on a hot stove made me feel the way alcohol made me feel, I probably have some burned calloused hands right here. You know what I mean? Alcohol did something absolutely tremendously magical for me. In fact, let's flip ahead. Uh, I, I like going through this. Let's flip ahead to 83. We, we refer to these as the ninth step promises. Um, and, you know, so these promises will come true. They're telling us this is what our life will look like once we get to the ninth step and we start making amends. But if I look at, especially in the early days, in the beginning of my drinking, if I start to think of what alcohol did for me when I started drinking, this is very, very spot on. So I'm at the very bottom of 83 there. When I started drinking, we are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. Yep. When I started drinking, especially in the early, in the early days, we will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. That is what alcohol did for me. I comprehended the word serenity. I finally, finally had some peace. When I first started drinking, no matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. When I started drinking, I love to tell people things and uh, you know share my opinions on every, top, every topic ever. That, uh, when I started drinking, that feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. Check. When I started drinking, I would lose interest in selfish things, gain interest in my fellows. I finally felt connected to you. I finally felt connected to other people. When I started drinking, uh, my whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of, of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. 
We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. This to me is a perfect example of what alcohol does for me. And that's why I kept putting my hand on that hot stove over and over and over um, because of this magic that happened. Uh, Alcohol was not my problem. Alcohol really was my solution. My solution to life was alcohol. And and that's the reason why right there. Let's jump to 34 real quick. Um, uh, towards the bottom third of the page there, it says, many of us felt we had plenty of character. There was a tremendous urge, urge to cease forever, yet we found it impossible. This is the baffling feature of alcoholism as we know it. This utter inability to leave it alone, no matter how great the necessity or the wish. And that's because of, of, of what I just read. I mean, that's because of what alcohol did for me. You know, I was able to... I was able to be connected to you. I was able to be part of life. And because of that, no matter how much damage alcohol was ca- causing me, I still continued to go back to it. Let's jump. I'm, I'm bouncing around a little bit. Let's go to 24 at the very bottom of 24. It says, uh, when this sort of thinking is fully established in an individual with alcoholic tendencies, he has probably placed himself beyond human aid. You know, I, I, that would have made no sense to me when I was drinking. That really wouldn't because I just couldn't fathom if I really needed to stop forever. I, I just always had in the back of my head that I, I would be able to do that. I would be successful. You know, I was delusional. I was, I was not looking at the truth and the facts of my life. I was basically just looking at this great obsession. Somehow, someday I will control and enjoy my drinking. And that was the way I was really thinking about it. I'm going to skip to, uh, 37. Here's the first time we're going to use this word. I'm at the top of 37. It says, whatever the precise definition of the word may be, we call this plain insanity. How can such a lack of proportion of the ability to think straight be called anything else? So it's really spot on. It is a form of insanity. It's alcoholic insanity. You know, I'm end up drinking against my will. I have promised myself, I have, you know, sworn up and down, I'm done. And after a few days, weeks, or months, I pick it up once again. I give in once again. It's alcoholic insanity. It's, it's, we keep doing it basically. Um, let's go to 38, flip over the page there. And um, towards the bottom of the page, about a, two thirds down the page there, it's going to say, however in, intelligent we may have been in other respects, where alcohol has been involved, we've been strangely insane. It's strong language, but isn't it true? This is another one that messed with me. I was successful in licking other habits. You know, I could make these commitments to myself and I could stick with them. So I thought that drinking was going to be the same thing. It seemed logical. It seemed to make sense, but that was not the case. That proved to be the case. <clears throat> I'm going to keep reading here. Some of you are thinking, yes, what you tell us is true, but it doesn't fully apply. We admit we have some of these symptoms, but we have not gone to the extremes you fellows did, nor are we likely to, for we understand ourselves so well after what you have told us that such things cannot happen. We have not lost everything in life through drinking, and we certainly don't intend to. Thanks for the information. That may be true of certain non-alcoholic people who, though drinking foolishly and heavily at the present time, are able to stop or moderate because their brains and bodies have not been damaged as ours were. But the actual or potential alcoholic, with hardly an exception, will be absolutely unable to stop drinking on the basis of self-knowledge. 
This is a point we wish to emphasize and re-emphasize to smash home upon our alcoholic readers as it has been revealed to us out of bitter experience. How important do you think they want us to, to know that information there? They want to smash it home to us, right? And, and this is an important thing here. That's the bad news, really. Everything we've talked about so far tonight, all this physical, mental stuff, we can know all this and it still won't help us. It still will not keep me sober forever. I prove that. We'll go to 43 here. The very bottom, great little paragraph here. Once more, the alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink. Let me talk about that real briefly there. At certain times. So I do have an effective mental defense against the first drink sometimes. I'll even say most times. But at certain times, I have no effective mental defense against the first drink. Except in a few rare cases, neither he nor any other human being can provide such a defense. That means the AA meeting, my sponsor, my wife, my kids, my boss, no other human power can provide that defense. My defense must come from a higher power. All right, let's, uh, let's go to 44. Let's flip the page to 44 here. And, uh, you know, they're going to basically... We're going to basically summarize everything I've just talked about here um, right towards the top of the page. I'm just skipping the first sentence here, but it says, we hope we have made clear the distinction between the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic. If when you honestly want to, you find you can't quit entirely or when drinking, you have little control over the amount you take, you are probably alcoholic. That's two simple questions there. Two simple questions that we can honestly ask ourselves to diagnose ourselves here. If that be the case, you may be suffering from an illness, which only a spiritual experience will conquer. See how we're doing on time here. I'm going to move ahead here. Let's, uh, let's talk about some solution. We, we, we hit the problem pretty good there, but uh, let's talk about some solution. Let's go to page 25. Go to page 25. And on the first full paragraph there, you'll see the italicized writing there. It says, there is a solution. Almost none of us like the self-serving, the leveling of our pride, the confession of shortcomings, which the process requires for its successful consummation. <laughs> Somebody told me once in a book study that, uh, what if that period was moved over five words? And it would say, there is a solution almost none of us liked. <laughs> I love that because, you know, working this program is not necessarily uh, a fun time, you know, <laughs> especially in the beginning. I mean, this is uh, some, some, you know, some work, this is some work. And I, as an alcoholic, do not like, do not like work. You know, um, it's important here, the solution, you know, I'm going to keep reading here, but it's important. We know this solution that Alcoholics Anonymous gives us, it basically the steps get us hooked up with to a power greater than ourselves. The steps don't really show us how to stop drinking. There's nowhere in our book that says, okay, stop drinking now. You know, it, it just doesn't, just doesn't work like that. And we get hooked up to a power greater than ourselves. And it's almost, uh, almost a byproduct of that is uh, we don't drink anymore. The obsession to drinks removed. And, and that's powerful. Talking about solution. You can come with me if you want. I'm just going to read one little line on page 60, our 12th step. It says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. So they're telling us right there, that's our, that's our solution. That's our program. A spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. 
<clears throat> Let's go to 45. 45, I'm at the first full paragraph there. Some powerful stuff here. Lack of power, that was our dilemma. We had to find a power by which we could live, and it had to be a power greater than ourselves, obviously. But where and how are we to find that power, this power? Well, that's exactly what this book is about. Its main object is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. So that's beautiful. It doesn't tell me right there. It tells me lack of power is my dilemma. It doesn't tell me, you know, lack of, uh, you know, it doesn't tell me alcohol is my dilemma, which is what I thought. It's telling me lack of power is my dilemma because I do not have the power in myself to not pick up that first drink. And my track record shows that. And I would challenge everybody here, you know, to look at your own track record. You know, do you have the power within yourself to not pick up that first drink? And if so, I mean, it might be great news. You might not need Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, it might be awesome if you have that power in yourself. I do not. My track record showed that. So, you know, some people get a little funny here because, you know, you feel like we're trying to trick you. Power greater than yourself. It's like, oh, we know you're talking about God and we don't want to hear it, you know, whatever. So let's see what uh, the book tells, tells about that. Let's flip the page to 46. And I'm at the last full paragraph there. It says, much to our relief, we discovered we did not need to consider another's conception of God. Our own conception, however inadequate, was sufficient to make the approach and to affect a contact with them. This is so important here. Alcoholics Anonymous is not a cult. Alcoholics Anonymous, honestly, our program does not care what you believe in. You can have any higher power you want as long as it's spiritual in nature. Okay. So there's, there's no religion here and you can basically have any power you want, uh, any higher power you want. It's telling you right there, pretty, pretty clear cut flip over to 47. I'll flip. It's just right over across the page on 47 there. It says when therefore we speak to you of God, we mean your own conception of God. So they're basically, uh, uh, using God as an almost generic term in this book. You know, it's a, it's a convenient word uh, that, that works for, that hopefully works for everybody, you know, and God can mean to you, whatever it needs to mean to you. You know, that's the way they're using it in this book here. This applies too to other spiritual expressions, which you find in this book. Do not let any prejudice you may have against spiritual terms deter you from honestly asking yourself what they mean to you. And it's just, uh, and it's just that, that clear right there. Um, <clears throat> we'll go down. Uh, I'm still on 47 here. We'll go down to the next paragraph. And sometimes this referred to as the second step question it says we needed to ask ourselves one short question. Do I now believe, or am I even willing to believe in a power greater than myself? That's a yes or no question. Do I now believe or am I even willing to believe? As soon as a man can say he does believe or is willing to believe, we emphatically assure him he is on his way. It has been repeatedly proven among us that upon this simple cornerstone, a wonderfully effective spiritual structure can be built. So I think what they're telling me here is the willingness is the important part. All right. So that's uh, what I got on the second step for now. I'm going to read one line off 64 because, you know, this is kind of set us up to move into the third step. <clears throat> and at 64 is just one line. It says, our liquor was but a symptom. We had to get down to causes and conditions. So we kind of found that out already. And now we're going to find out through our program how we actually do that. Let's go to 62 here. And, you know, these 
these uh, these next couple of paragraphs are possibly the most powerful, amazing, you know, lines in our book. It's absolutely where it's at. I'm at the first full paragraph there. It says selfishness, self-centeredness that we think is the root of our troubles. This is a total, this was a total shift for me. Okay. To, you know, to have my sponsor read this with me and, and tell me that uh, it was, it was surprising. It was baffling. You know, I, I thought it seemed the alcohol was the root of my trouble. You know, it seemed like that was the, the real root of it all, but really they're telling me here, my selfishness and self-centeredness is driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking and self-pity. We step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. Sometimes they hurt us seemingly without provocation, but we invariably find at some time in the past, we have made decisions based on self, which later placed us in a position to be hurt. I'm, I'm, I'm learning here. They're telling me right here. It's time. It's time for Ryan to stop being the victim. It's time for Ryan to start looking at all of my past behaviors in a new light. Okay. It says, so our troubles we think are basically of our own making. Again, it's basically telling me it's my fault. It's, it's my fault. I made a mess of my life. I really did. I was sick, no doubt. Um, but it's really, it's really, my own fault. My troubles are of my own making. They arise out of ourselves. I love that. I always picture like a volcano of, I'm like a volcano of troubles. You know, they're arising out of myself. <clears throat> and the alcoholic is an extreme example of self-will run riot, though he usually doesn't think so. Above everything, we alcoholics must be rid of the selfishness. We must or it kills us. God makes that possible. And there, seem, and there often seems no way of entirely getting rid of self without his aid. So this stuff right here, this, you know, I could talk for a whole hour on this right here. I'm not going to, don't worry, <laughs> but it's, this stuff is so huge. And what it's doing here is shifting the way I'm looking at my life and, and hopefully the world, you know, it is setting me up to get ready to get into steps four through nine. It's getting me in the mindset that I need to be successful working steps four through nine. Um, if you want to go to 58, that's where it says the steps, uh, where the steps are listed, I'll accept 12. <laughs> and we can see uh, step four, made a searching and fearless moral inv inventory of ourselves. So now with that mentality that the troubles are of my own making, that my selfishness and self-centeredness is the root of my trouble. Now I'm able to take my sponsor's directions out of the book here, and I'm able to go do an inventory of my life and, and go learn some, learn some truths about myself pretty much. The fifth step, I'm going to take that information that I've worked on and I'm going to take that to, uh, to God and to my sponsor. And, um, you know, hopefully my sponsor is experienced enough. His, his, his role there for that is going to be to help me find my own mistakes in all of these, all of this inventory stuff that I've written down, all my resentments, my fears and my conduct. And I'm going to be, you know, reading this stuff to my sponsor and he's going to be helping me see if I can't see where my mistakes are. He's going to be helping me see that. Now, when I'm done with that, um, I'm going to have some mixed feelings and I'm going to have a whole list of my mistakes. Right. Um, they might want to call them shortcomings or character defects, sins. Uh, you know, the book calls them a whole bunch of different things there, but they're basically my mistakes and the mess that I've made. And I get to ask myself, like, what do I find objectionable? That's the sixth step. 
We're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. So I'm able to see what's objectionable and I become willing at that point to change, to have God remove that stuff for me. The seventh step is a simple prayer that actually when I'm ready, I'm asking God to take all of me. It says good and bad. I cannot determine, you know, the good and the bad. (laughs) My justifications don't let me do that pretty much. So I'm going to offer all of myself to God. And once I do that, I'm going to make a list of all persons I've harmed and become willing to make amends to them all. This eight step often gets kind of overlooked a little bit here. It's a very, very, very important step. I used to call it an organizational step and I was way wrong. This, uh, this is all about willingness to clean up the past. And it's important that I become willing for the ninth step when I actually go out there and actually start to clean this stuff up because the ninth, the ninth step says made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. So the ninth step, I'm actually going to go to people I have harmed in my life and I'm going to try to right those wrongs. I'm going to admit my mistakes and I'm going to try to right those wrongs. Um, steps 10, 11, and 12, we refer to as AA's uh, relapse prevention plan. Um, it's basically my instructions for the rest of my life, steps 10, 11, and 12. Um, it's basically continuing and, uh, and growing and carrying this message to, to other alcoholics. I mean, the, the, our book, I'm not going to go into it now, but our book spends a lot of time explaining the importance of carrying this message. Once I'm well, once I'm recovered, I'm able to, you know, to carry this message and to help other people. And uh, let me jump ahead real quick here to tell you what a recovered alcoholic looks like. These, these we refer to as the 10th step promises. So I'm at the bottom of 84 here. It says, we have ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol, for by this time, sanity will have returned. So there's the, this is by the time I get to the 10th step here. We will seldom be interested in liquor. If tempted, we recoil from it as from a hot flame. There's that hot stove reference that I think of there. We react sanely and normally, and we will find that this has happened automatically. We will see that our new attitude toward liquor has been given us without any thought or effort on our part. It just comes. That is the miracle of it. We are not fighting it, neither are we avoiding temptation. We feel as though we've been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. We have not even sworn off. Instead, the problem has been removed. It does not exist for us. We are neither cocky nor are we afraid. That is our experience. That is how we react so long as we keep in fit spiritual condition. For a guy like me who was drinking the way I was drinking and could not stay stopped, for this, these promises to come true in my life is an absolute miracle. It's an absolute miracle. And, and, and you know, for a guy like me, it's just, it's just absolutely beautiful. I'll close with this. I, I like to talk about this here. You know, at the very bottom of 95, <clears throat> the very bottom of 95, this, this chapter is talking about working with others and it's talking about um, explaining our program of action to a new guy, a suffering alcoholic, right? And we're sitting there and then it says, if he thinks he can do the job some other way in some other way, or prefers some other spiritual approach, encourage him to follow his own conscience. It's okay if they don't want to, you know, work these 12 steps. We have no monopoly on God. We merely have an approach that worked with us. We are not a cult. We have something that has worked with us. I have my experience. I was sick. I came to AA. I worked the 12 steps and I got well. And that's an experience that I have. And I can pass that along. But if somebody doesn't want it, encourage him to try another approach. 
that's what our program's telling us to do. Thank you guys so much for listening. Um, I really appreciate it. I'm Ryan Milne, Recovered Alcoholic.